<laughs> it's March 16th, 1996. <laughs> An Ironic by Alanis Morissette is number one on the Billboard Modern Rock chart. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Tell Me All Your Thoughts on Pod. I'm Al. I'm Quillen. I'm Trav. And this is a podcast where we talk about every song that reached number one on the Billboard Modern Rock chart in the 90s, beginning with Kurt Cobain's death in April 1994. Today, we'll be talking about Ironic, the third single from Alanis Morissette's third album, Jagged Little Pill. Ironic spent three weeks at number one. All right. Well, um, this is a controversial song. I'm curious to see if the controversy carries into our little squad here. Um, Quillen, I think that you've said positive things about this song before. So why don't we start with you? Oh, yeah. I love this song. I pretty much always have. Um, I guess I would, uh, even when I was young, I think I considered it a guilty pleasure. I think I felt like I was looked down upon for liking this song, uh, among my friends. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, it is an Alanis Morissette song with, uh, acoustic guitar and like programmed beat. And I think a combo of programmed beat and live drums, uh, the fills going into the chorus are definitely live drums. Um, At the very least, on two and four, there is some kind of synthetic snare sound that's coming in to yeah, yeah, yeah for sure, to popify everything. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just I think the melody uh, and harmony during the chorus uh, are awesome. Um, I think she may be singing with a little more like oomph than I would like. She's singing very, very loudly. Um, and but it's great it's a great vocal performance uh as you know usual for her and um yeah i don't know it's another like sentimental sounding song musically that uh, i'm a sucker for and uh yeah it just uh rules yeah so i uh, i hear you mostly talking about the chorus is is that the main feature for you oh, oh yeah for sure but i mean i think the verse is fine too musically um i know we'll get into the lyrics and the controversy around that um controversy and quotes uh-huh, uh-huh. um so i won't really touch on that but um yeah i, I think the, the i mean everything about the song is great i think the like meandering intro um that ends up as the bridge too um with a bit more structure is awesome and yeah it's i mean it's it's a near perfect song for me i I think it's it's really really great trav I don't, I don't, I don't know what to say. I like that. Sounds sounded like I was going to be like really down on it. I'm not. Um, it's fine. It's good. It's good. Um, I always um tended to think about the song, um, in terms of like the uh, the guitar, the acoustic guitar. I think it was on the the uh, fourth fret, the capo on the fourth fret. Ah, and uh, I think that was part of the defining uh characteristic of the the harmonic quality of the song um now 
is there a strong chorus effect on the acoustic guitar or is that coming from a keyboard? That's a great question. So I think there is a, an acoustic guitar happening, but I think one of the more uh, like prominent sort of, well, I, maybe not prominent, but um, one of the best parts of the song that uh, is sort of maybe a little more subtle is that there is something going on playing like a melody in the verses that sounds like mm-hmm. it's either a soft keyboard or maybe a uh, an electric guitar with some chorus on it. Yeah, clean that, channel uh, chorus guitar think, is what it sounds like to okay. me. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's playing this melody underneath um, new, the vocals. It's so great. New, 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 yeah, see, I yeah. was kind of wondering if that was like a Whitney Houston-style soft rock electric piano doing that but yeah, yeah maybe yeah maybe yeah, yeah i kind of thought that too but that's that's one of the great parts of the song i love the bridge i think the bridge is fantastic yeah. um really helps make the song um and the, the end- bridge is something i didn't really notice as a kid yeah as being awesome and now i i really there's a lot about it that is um appealing to me yeah and the way that the chorus ends i think is is especially oh, yeah. good yeah um um it has uh jars of clay vibes for me uh acoustic guitar <laughs> uh program beat uh yeah trav gave a facial cool. expression that was like almost genuinely irritated <laughs> i was i was i was mad at myself for sighing too much early on yeah. so that i couldn't have another really long sigh when he yeah. said that <laughs> So I'm gonna sorry, s- but it's true. Yeah, I'm going to say my two positive things and then we'll go from there. I do think that this song has a sort of a scream along melody on the chorus that is appealing. I think the music video brings that out. And mm-hmm. I also really like that guitar sound and that little electric guitar sting that dun, 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 when yeah. the yes. bass, when the bass joins in. With the acoustic guitar, that's a very satisfying moment. Does it do the same? Like the same lot. progression, the same notes? At, 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 at at least one point in the song. Oh wow! Yeah. I didn't oh cool. That. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I did either. But we know that there is a there's a big ironic backlash, and I'm part of it. Um, one of my first memories of this song is I I believe that it was ninety six point three. I'm curious to see if you all remember this. I want to say it was probably Saturday morning that they did a weekend countdown. Um, Because I believe that Sunday morning was 80s flashback morning on 96.3, and I hated it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hated synthesizers. I hated gated snare sounds when I was uh, an adolescent. I despised the sound palette of 80s pop. I think I hated the drum sound, too, when I was yeah. a kid. I always... uh hated like the cure drum sounds when i was really young until i got into the cure but yeah i can't think of like anything that i hated more than like love shack when Mm -hmm. i was like 10 years old um so there was this countdown on 96.3 to i don't remember the number one most played song that week or something like that it wasn't just the billboard charts but uh for a long time period when I was listening to music in 1996, there was a time period when the number one slot traded around between Ironic, Wonderwall, and Missing by Everything But The Girl. Mm. And uh, I was always rooting for Wonderwall, and so I was always rooting against Ironic. And that must have been kind of the start of my dislike of Ironic. But... um we can talk about the sort of the literary analysis beef that a lot of people have with this song. I guess we will talk about that, but I think my number one source of irritation is that she delivers all of her lines. Like she's sharing some kind of funny secret. Like we're all kind of like co-conspirators. We're all in on the same joke. And I think that this probably works if you're won over by the song. But if you're not quite won over by the song, it just exacerbates the whole situation. And it it kind of it kind of drives me up the wall. Um, the idea of like the, uh, you know, if someone tells you a secret and you don't find it interesting, if somebody tells you a joke and you don't think it funny, uh, you know, when the plane crashed down, <laughs> well, isn't this nice? <laughs> uh, I really, I feel the urge to mock it mercilessly. 
Um, and I think I've already done this, but yeah. And yeah, I really do think <laughs> like I have to make that laughing sound after every line from this song. I get, I get really annoyed by it. I am a little bit concerned that there might be some, some kind of internalized sexism at work here that might be irritating me. I don't really know. Um, you know, my disdain for this song emerged at a young age when maybe I was kind of unenlightened. I'm not saying that I'm enlightened now, but uh, uh, I haven't even begun to talk about what kind of drives me crazy about this song. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I will say that, um, and, and I don't want to kind of jump around too much with our, our template here, but um, watching the music video in preparation for this... I got a lot of those vibes. I felt like it was very cringy in a way that I I had not felt when I was younger. Like I always thought like, oh, that's a neat video, you know, a neat concept where she's showing this different, you know, personas or different, you know, corners of her personality or whatever. And that was great. And I watched it recently and I was just like, oh, God, this is too much like the I, I just it was so performative Mm. And um, it, it just it, it did not sit well with me. See, I actually really like the music video. Um, I just like the wintry vibe. And, uh, I, I, you know, I find Alanis Morissette so appealing as a personality, as a person. And if she can provide that help to me, I can mm. get over some of my my dislike of this song. But uh, it's interesting that the music video is I it. it I, I gathered that it was relatively acclaimed, like, mm-hmm. and won awards and stuff. Some uh, kind of fancy, some kind of fancy French director, I think. Uh, okay, I don't like the music video nearly as much as the video for um, "Hand in My Pocket." Hmm. I think the "Hand in My Pocket" video is still the best one we've seen. Well, and see, and I was obsessed with the video for uh, was it "Head Over Feet." That was just the kind oh, of the, yes. the one take in the studio. I, oh, yes. that, yeah, I, right. I just adored it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I guess we can get then to uh, the, the, the other source of irritation that people have with this song, which is that many, many people have pointed out that Alanis is not offering good examples of irony. Um. Uh, I am an English teacher. I am the literary analysis police. Um, I won't get into it too much because this has been extensively written about in the past. The New York Times had a think piece in 2008 about how this song was not truly ironic. Salon had a think piece in 2014 about how this piece is, this song is not truly ironic. And The Atlantic in 2016 had an article about how this the lyrics of this song are not truly ironic. So I am the guy who listens and smugly says, well, no, that's not really ironic. That's inconvenient, but it's not ironic. I, I will very briefly go through the English teacher explanation of this and then, and then I'll, I'll drop all this. But um, there are three kinds of irony. Basically, what Alanis is most likely attempting here is situational irony, mm-hmm. which is when the outcome of a situation contradicts uh, I'm going to talk about this in the literary sense, the reader or the character's expectations. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are situations where like, maybe what happens is different from what was expected, but they're generally just kind of like, well, that's crappy that that happened, but it doesn't necessarily contradict our expectations. One of the, the sort of the more, the more pure examples of irony that I share with my students is if a, Marathon runner trained really hard for a marathon. We would expect them to do well. If they trained so hard that they slept through the race, that would be an ironic outcome. And the reason why that's like really pure irony is because the very thing that we expected would make the runner successful, that they had trained so hard, was the very thing that made them unsuccessful. Uh, the fact that they ended up sleeping through the race. So we have like varying degrees of irony and it doesn't always have to be that pure, but you know, the idea of just like it raining on your wedding day or um, being afraid of flying and then you get on a plane and it crashes, like that actually confirms our expectations or confirms the character's expectations, um, tells us that their fears were justified. Anyway, um, 
that's a, this is all a boring point to make and countless people have made it. And I will ultimately, um, when it's time to rate, I will go a little bit easier on this because firstly, Alanis Morissette was what, maybe, like, maybe 20 years old when she wrote this song. And yeah. she also has responded with her typical grace and good naturedness. She went on James Corden's show in 2016. She performed a parody. Um, some of it is pretty dumb. It's like swiping left on your future soulmate. It's a Snapchat that you wish you had saved. Uh, it's a funny tweet that nobody faved. <laughs> But she also included it's singing classic. It's chord. singing ironic when there are no ironies, um, and and apparently in the musical Jagged Little Pill, a character says that's not irony, that's just like shitty. And in recent interviews, she's also, of course, had a very wonderfully mature and gracious attitude about the whole thing. She says she never really actually wanted this song to be on the album. Sometimes the myth making happens yeah. with these with these things, but. Um, you know, either way, uh, I acknowledge how pedantic it is and how superior and snide it is to to sneer at this, you know, very young person's um, use of the word irony. But nonetheless, I, I have a hard time getting over the idea that part of this song is just actually kind of failed at its goal. Yeah, so I think um, you set that up really nicely to say like either you're you're on the the side of the um, you know the literal interpretation of what this means, or you can just kind of approach it with the spirit that it was meant to be taken. Mm-hmm. And um, I find it very easy to accept um, how it was presented. Um, because mostly because I didn't understand it at the time, you know, if it was 95 or 96, Mm -hmm. it was, you know, I'm 13 or 14 and I don't know the difference between irony and coincidence and all of the, you know, variations of that and everything. And so I didn't see a problem with it for a very long time. And then when I did, I was like, oh, you know, and then you get, like you said, it can be kind of snide and you get the articles from Salon and the Atlantic and things like that. And which it makes it easy to kind of like have a backlash to the backlash mm-hmm. and be like, ah, come on, relax a little yeah, bit, you know? Yeah, totally. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's pretty much where I, I, I've settled at this point. I'm with you. Yeah. I don't think it's that big of a deal. Yeah. I, I wanted to do something really fancy. I emailed eight different English teachers that I know to ask them their opinions of this song, but only two of them responded. Uh, so um, nobody had dramatic issues with, uh, with the song. I didn't understand what the meaning of irony, the true meaning of irony was until I watched the film Teaching Mrs. Tingle. I haven't seen it. Did you ever happen to see that? I think that was with like Katie Holmes, maybe in like 99 or 2000. Maybe Helen Mirren was in it. I should have checked this out beforehand. But it was basically like the whole point was to like demonstrate irony in killing their teacher somehow. And like at the end, like the the final like punchline is like that. That's an irony. That's irony, you know, or whatever. It's just it was terrible, but um it it served its purpose, yeah. I guess. I, I get what they were trying to get. Well, I at. think that everybody has the experience of uh did you all read the gift of the Magi in school at some point? Henry oh, yeah. story where, you know, the guy sells his pocket watch to buy combs for his wife's hair and his wife sells her hair to buy a watch for the man's pocket uh, to buy a chain for the man's pocket watch and um uh you know i i that's kind of the classic school kid um example yeah. i weirdly reference that a lot yeah. i don't uh, yeah. oh henry's that's... got a couple of funny ironic endings there he's got a story called the ransom of mm. red chief that has a similar ending that is is pretty good yeah, so I'm not proud of myself for, <laughs> again, I'll, let me just go back to whatever is creating that chorusy <laughs> sound with the acoustic guitar, whether it's a keyboard or an electric <laughs> guitar, I, I find that really appealing. 
No, too late. You're a piece of shit. <laughs> well, rather than going on and talking about a third Alanis Morissette album, um, we decided to do something a little different and um, to look at uh, to sort of evaluate whether Alanis Morissette had a, a, an impact on alternative radio. So there's an author that we've come back to again and again, um, who I think we've always torn apart every time we've talked about him. But there's this guy named Adam Caress who wrote the melodramatic book, The Day Alternative Music Died. Um, and here's a quote from him. And this is uh, going to be the guide to our next mm. session. Uh, the successful development of Alanis Morissette had a effect on the way major labels would develop and market subsequent artists, especially female artists, for years to come. From Meredith Brooks' calculated you ought to know knockoff bitch, through the continuing string of edgy female artists developed within the major label system. So our question for our uh, album sequence this week is, is there evidence for this thesis? So we thought that we would go around our, uh, our little group here and introduce singles and sort of evaluate whether they back up this thesis that there was an Alanis-motivated sort of string of um, label investments in edgy female artists in the Alanis mold. Um. Maybe I'll get us started just since I chose the most obvious example. I chose uh, Bitch by Meredith Brooks. This is a song that um, has acoustic guitar and drum machine in a mode that is similar to some Jagged Little Pill hits. In some ways, Meredith Brooks' vocal uh, performance is a little bit reminiscent of Alanis Morissette. And I feel like the idea of her referring to herself as a bitch and owning that term and using it to refer to sort of the complexity of female identity is, um, is sort of a jagged little pill sentiment. So personally, I feel like bitch does offer a little bit of evidence for the, uh, the Alanis thesis. Um, and I also should just should say separately, I like this song quite a bit. I think it's a pretty good song. I, I like the elect, I like the electric guitar really? solo quite a bit. Um, yeah, I, I think it's a pretty winning song. Thoughts on the song in general and whether it uh, whether it seems like an Alanis knockoff? I have a, uh, I guess, kind of a shameful take on it, which is that I've never really taken it seriously because uh, uh, for that very reason, it was probably marketed that way. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is just sort of another kind of like tossed in sort of like you know, angry woman song or like, you know, to name a song bitch in in that era was mm -hmm. quote unquote edgy. And, um, I think I, that never really like, uh, struck me as, as genuine or sincere. It, it struck me as like a marketing thing. And I, I mean, even at a young age where I was like, I just very skeptical mm. of it from the start. And I've never moved past that. And, uh, yeah, honestly, I didn't, I didn't, um, listen to it before this episode, so I probably haven't heard it in a couple of years, um, and probably haven't paid attention to it, close attention to it in a very, very long time. So I'm not really quite sure. Yeah. How to very that. simple electric guitar solo, Trav, but I think you might dig it if you revisited it. Okay. I definitely hated the song when I was young. Um, and I'm not sure when I, I, I couldn't tell you the last time that I um, had listened to it. So I am going to reserve but it any. It sounds like for a, Trav, a you, time. you felt like this was a, a blatant 
in the Alanis mold, uh, kind of like the industry chasing that Alanis money. Yeah, um, I, I mean, as a kid, for sure. But I think I might have been susceptible to accepting that for a much wider scope of um, music from from women mm-hmm. artists than I probably should have. Like, I think that was probably extended into like yeah. a lot of Lilith Fair bands and things like that mm. and artists. Mm-hmm. And I just sort of accepted it as like, oh, mm-hmm. they're just trying to be like Alanis Morissette or, you know, like whatever I read. You know, I, I think we've talked about this probably in earlier Alanis episodes about like um, you read music criticism or read articles or reviews in Rolling Stone and things like that. And you just sort of accept it as the way that things are because they're adults and that's, you know, they know more than you and you, you sort of accept that as the truth. And, uh, I probably accepted that for a lot of bands that, um, you know, that, that wasn't fair and it, it didn't serve me well to, um, you know, maybe overlook some or dismiss yeah. some, some artists that I, I shouldn't have. Trav, what was the song that you thought uh, reflected on this <clears throat> thesis? Yeah. So I think the first one that came to mind when you think about like, you think about Alanis and the way she was marketed, you think about angry women. And uh, the first song that came to mind was angry Johnny by Poe. was from uh, an album that came out in 1995 called Hello and it's basically like a trip hop song that sounds like Portishead um it, it much it, it lines up a lot more with Portishead than than Alanis Morissette or any kind of alternative song and she was very like um uh, like she had a, a pretty diverse sort of like uh, spectrum of like what she was doing musically. One of the songs on this album was actually produced by Jay Dilla, which Fascinating. is pretty amazing yeah. in 1995. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but because, um, you know, it was edgy. Um, I think one of the, the song it's suggestive in a way that's sort of like, you know, PG 13 sexuality and stuff like that. And, and uh, it, yeah, um, it's it's a really it, it, I don't know if it's a good song, but I loved it as a kid, and um, basically my way of kind of like confirming Alanis Morissette's impact on it was to Google, um, the artist song title huh. and then Alanis Morissette and see like what articles came up, and there were always some for the three songs that I picked, um. One quote that I got was, um, uh, hello came out on the heels of Alanis Morissette's You Ought to Know phenomenon, and its payoff track was Poe's own angry chick manifesto, Angry Johnny. Um, and then there's another article that was very like thorough and kind of hits on everything we're talking about um, from the New York Times from this era. It was called Pop mm-hmm. View, The Angry Young Woman. The labels take notice and it kind of articulates everything that we're we're kind of getting at and it was here. very enthusiastic um, about this trend yeah it was it was enthusiastic and kind of you know aware of what uh-huh. it was saying i think uh, uh an additional thought that i had that i'll i'll start with um is just uh liz fair in general like do you think that um I mean, she signed to a major label. I don't know what year her first major label release was in the aughts, correct? I don't think it was in the 90s. Or am I wrong? I'm, I, I'm really not the that. labels I'm, guy. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that it was like 2000 or something like that. That was her. Yeah, the self-titled album with Why Can't I? Is that a like single? The, okay, I yeah, the big, I I've never big single, and it okay. was really nice and well produced and okay. everything. But yeah, I've never listened to major label Liz Fair. Um, but I just like, yeah, have to wonder if 
um her you know major label seeking her out was partially a result of of the alanis factor um though i mean she was pretty huge pre um major label anyways yeah i feel like i i i I don't think there's a ton of weight to to this but um i i think it's curious and and i feel like the distinction you're making is maybe the most important distinction here with this whole idea that labels sought out edgy female artists is the idea that okay this is possibly post alanis is when labels decided to try to monetize this um Mm -hmm. but it would be really important to make a distinction that we have courtney love pj harvey liz fair yeah all being angry women very authentically and powerfully in the early 90s and of course you know it's unfair even to i mean think about someone like kathleen hannah um throw that in the Mm. mix and like it becomes very clear that like the angry female alternative woman, female woman. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is very much not a new development, but yeah, maybe totally. labels yeah. efforts to capitalize on the success of Alanis Morissette or their realization that this could lead to mainstream market success. That might be the story here. Another uh, act that I thought of to include in this conversation was Fiona Apple, and the song that I thought of mm-hmm. was Criminal. Um, this is certainly a bad girl song. She sings, I've been a bad, bad girl. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's a, a, a song about, uh, you know, it's a woman singing about sort of using a man. And um, it did come on the heels of Jagged Little Pill. Uh, And so I guess could maybe confirm the thesis that, you know, labels were superficially fishing for more angry young women. But I think, you know, anybody would agree that Fiona Apple is original. I don't see anything that she's doing musically that could be construed as 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 uh you know as stepping in Alanis Morissette's footsteps yeah i think that she um i think the one thing that they maybe have in common is the uh the fact that they were sort of nonconformist um mm. Fiona Apple especially and Alanis Morissette maybe maybe was presented that way because because of how uncommercial some of the lyrics from you ought to know were but outside of that, everything that I'm sure the label wanted to do, they could present her in a way that was appealing enough. She wasn't difficult, you know, or quote unquote, you know, like Fiona Apple. There's always the speech from the uh, maybe the MTV Music Awards where she talks about the world being bullshit. What I want to say is um, everybody out there that's watching, everybody that's watching this world, this world is bullshit. And you shouldn't model your life. Wait a second. You shouldn't model your life about what you think that we think is cool and what we're wearing and what we're saying and everything. Go with yourself. Go with yourself. And everything. And everybody just kind of rolls their eyes and like claps politely. But it was like this amazing sort of like young person sort of like uh, presentation of how the concept of everything that she was involved in at that point was bullshit. She was right. You Mm -hmm. know, she was right after all that time and everybody dismissed her because she was young and, and everything like that. But, um, I think that it was easy to tie the two artists together because they didn't fit into a, a, a a neat sort of box that they could present Mm -hmm. them, you know, in the same way with, uh, Trev, uh, Mm -hmm. another song that you're thinking of. 
Yeah. So um, another uh, song that came to mind was um, one of my absolute favorite songs from the decade. Um, it is called Inside by Patty Rothberg. I think I'll write a letter home telling everybody that I'm happy alone. And maybe if I play the role, I can roll myself into a big black hole. I can roll myself on down the line, telling everybody that I'm just fine. My troubled mind, I can't confide that we are all the same. Inside, inside, inside. Just an absolute perfect song. I love this song. Uh, this would be a five star. A five-star jam for me if we were rating it. Um, I think it's wonderful, and it's just sort of a minor mm-hmm. hit. Um, I remember seeing it on MTV, maybe hearing it on the radio a couple of times, and then just fading into obscurity. But um, because it was, uh, I don't know, a, a woman artist that happened to put out an album in April 1996, she was consistently compared with Alanis mm-hmm. Morissette. Um, and again, you know, Googled's Patty Rothberg inside <laughs> Alanis Morissette and came up with like more results than anything else. Like it just continues, um, to be presented in this way. Um, there were, uh, a couple of quotes I picked out, um, the LA times review of the album. The first line says in the great angry white babe tradition of Alanis Morissette comes Rothberg, <laughs> another oh attractive young woman who mixes punk like angst and generous doses of pop savvy yielding catchy little ditties about unfaithful boyfriends and general post adolescent confusion. <laughs> I don't, I don't hear um, any relationship between this song and Alanis Morissette. No, I don't yeah. either. I don't either. It's, it's, um, you know, just kind of an open chord, kind of more like gin blossoms than anything, huh. really. I found um, her voice so appealing. I didn't get a chance to listen to the rest of her record, but I just wanted to spend time with that personality. Yeah. Yeah. There was one article that was really good top to bottom that I read. It was in the uh, Deseret News, which I guess is like a, a from, uh, you know, Utah, small town in Utah. And the article, the title of the article in all caps says, Rothberg insists she's not the next Alanis. <laughs> um, and the best quote was uh, from Patty Rothberg. She said, I had this one interviewer and all she could talk about was me and Alanis. She said, well, Alanis is about the same age as you. You both oh have long brown God. hair. <laughs> and that was that was like it <laughs> and uh she's like yeah we really aren't that similar um it's a really good article yeah. all the way through um that's sympathetic to her so um yeah it's it's just crazy that like you know in 1996 i'm sure she hadn't even like really had an even an opportunity to allow the songs from Jagged Little Pill to influence mm-hmm. her in any way. You know, I'm sure she had recorded everything by the time it had come out. And uh, and then she releases it and then gets associated with this other album and is just like, yeah, I don't I don't really have anything to do with that. Uh, Quill? Yeah, I, I thought of uh, Natalie Imbruglia's Torn um, as part of this narrative. Um, I... Don't, I, I think she's lacking the, um, like the edge, mm-hmm. uh, factor, but, um, and I don't mean that in a negative way by any means. I think torn slaps. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I think just like young woman mm-hmm. singing prettily and drum machine guitar and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. program drum beat. Yes. Like, like sonically it's there. And I feel like she was positioned to be like kind of the next mm-hmm. big female and an actress artist. too, right? She was Something an actress, like, that. like oh, an I, Australian. I soap, okay. I was going to ask, opera. was she Australian or was she, I think Australian British. Okay. I, I, couldn't quite remember um but yeah i I think just um yeah she 
and I don't, did she, I don't recall really any other um, hits from her. Wishing like, I Was I don't know There if, was she, a, a single that had some success. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm unfamiliar. I, I, I guess I, I never thought of her necessarily as a one-hit mm-hmm. wonder, but like, obviously she never reached um, Alanis Morissette Heights. I remember it's funny because that song is so bittersweet and 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 sincere. And I, I remember my mom coming into my bedroom when I was listening to that song once and saying, Alec, like really disapprovingly because it mentioned it mentioned being naked on the floor. <laughs> oh, yes. Lying naked yeah. on the floor. Yeah. <laughs> I, I chose for my final song to to think just purely about the sonic elements of Alanis Morissette's sound. And I found myself in very different territory, given 1999, four years after Jagged Little Pill came out. But uh, the third song that I thought of was Unpretty by TLC, which has lyrics about female empowerment Hmm. and finding yourself as a young woman, and also is based around acoustic guitar and drum machine. And to me, this sort of um, complicated the narrative that there was uh, a wave of sort of angry, rebellious, um, you know, I, th- I feel like the narrative is primarily white women that came in the wake of Jagged Little Pill. Um, and I kind of, when, when thinking about Unpretty, um, one interesting idea that comes to mind is that actually, since the mid-90s, there has been a tradition of R&B um, with acoustic guitar and programmed drums. Although I would say that the guitar is mm-hmm. generally in a little more of a Baroque style, often in sort of a Spanish style. I'm thinking uh, Tony Braxton. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking... Uh, um, I think Usher, maybe. Maybe a little bit of Usher. Brian later, McKnight. Yeah. Uh, maybe a little mm-hmm. bit of Boys to Men. Um, so that just made me think maybe we're... I guess it made me aware of how much maybe we're limiting the way that we're looking at this idea of an edgy young woman. And, uh, and maybe we should acknowledge the idea that there were edgy young black women that were maybe, um, uh, uh, using a lot of these same tropes, um, around the same time period. And, uh, and that that continued. Um, and, uh, I feel like unpretty, fits into the same mold as something like um what's the Atlantis song about winning first place it's an album track uh is it perfect perfect yeah yeah, yeah i felt like there there were a lot of um similarities there Uh, Trav, one more. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the the one person that I wanted to kind of touch on that I thought would be interesting was Amy Mann, who oh, was putting uh, music out around this time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think her second album came out in 1995. It was called I'm With Stupid. And, um, you know, it was right around the time of Jagged Little Pill. And I wondered how that would, you know, af- impact um, her releases at that time because she hadn't really become the critical darling that she would become later after Magnolia and and Bachelor Number Two and everything that came in the the twenty first century. Um, I think those first two albums were maybe not as popular, um, despite being 
pretty much just as good, at least um, with I'm With Stupid. Like, there are a lot of really great classic Amy Mann songs. And, um, yeah, I thought it was interesting to kind of look at how um, her her release would be marketed in the shadow of Alanis Morissette. Um, I did think it was interesting that um, she did claim... Uh, that she was listening to Liz Fair as an influence around this time. Yeah, that vocal uh, delivery with that wry, unemotional, semi-depressed yeah. sentiment seems very Liz Fair to me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she also mentioned Beck, um, which I thought was kind of interesting uh, as an influence, because in 1985, uh, I, I think Odalay came out in 96, yeah. so he was really kind of like focusing on the... Um, the, the the folky kind of um thing that he was doing with uh mellow gold and one foot in the mm-hmm. grave and, and things like that so um anyways uh found a handful of uh you know reviews that mentioned alanis and amy mann in the same in the same breath somehow so um the, the most prominent one was from uh an entertainment weekly review in 1996 which says um, Amy Mann administers scoldings to ex-boyfriends, ex-record labels, and other alleged nincompoops with a degree of indignation Alanis Morissette probably has yet to imagine in her young life. So they were able to still take a swipe and, you know, dismiss Alanis Morissette um, in the process of doing that. And I actually found that in other... (laughs) Other reviews that I didn't mention where it was just sort of like, oh, um, it was a Patty Rothberg one. Going back to that, if I can, for just a second. Um, Washington City Paper, 1996, said the anxiety that that, uh, Patty Rothberg betrays on such numbers might inspire the obvious inspiration or obvious comparison to fellow fellow bitter female Alanis Morissette. But the ex-Canadian dance pop queen's ironic brand of venom contrasts with Rothberg's more restrained delivery and more personal lyricizing. So I I do think it's interesting that even in comparing, and I know I'm supposed to kind of be focusing on Amy Mann here, but, um, you know, even in in comparing these artists to Alanis Morissette, they're still kind of like dismissing Alanis Morissette and, and saying that, you know, she's... She's a young girl. She doesn't know what she's talking about. She's angry. She hasn't figured out how life really is yet. Um, I'm not quite sure. Like, I, I don't think there's much of a, a, a comparison to be made with, with Amy Mann and Alanis Morissette. Um, I think Liz Fair is, is interesting. Mm-hmm. Like, th- there are maybe some similarities there because... You know, they're they're both playing that similar sort of guitar rock, but I think that um, Amy Mann was maybe a little more interested in um, maybe more sophisticated songwriting and craft, where uh, Liz Fair was a little more visceral yeah. and um, instinctual. I think of Amy Mann as a very literary songwriter. But the yeah, other thing definitely. to keep in mind here is that Amy Mann, uh, if you ask the general public, her most iconic song was uh, the Till Tuesday 1985 hit Voices Carry, which is basically written in the style of, you know, Simple Minds, very stereotypical 80s rock. Um, but the lyrics are about uh, domestic abuse um, coming from Amy Mann in 1985. Um, so that again, kind of just complicates the idea that this is a new phenomenon. But again, I think maybe what we're getting to here is the idea that maybe labels, uh, labels capitalizing on this as maybe a new phenomenon post Alanis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but maybe it's been happening. Quell, you have one last, uh, artist or song that, um, has a bearing on our, our thesis for the day. I think so. Um, Let's look to the cross for advisement on this. I thought of not immediately when we uh, talked about having this conversation, but pretty quickly thereafter, I thought, oh, I should take this uh, to church. Um, and uh, when I thought of uh, there was a, a Christian uh, artist by the name of Rebecca St. James, 
um, who, uh, as a kid I was aware of. And, um, I feel like she kind of had a similar, like, uh, career path that Alanis did, um, in the early days. I think she had two albums before, um, the album I'm going to mention. Um, and they were like, she was super young. Like she was a teenager. Um, and they were like pretty shitty, like, um, contemporary Christian, like bullcrap. And then, um, she had a 1996 album called God. And, (laughs) um, it was like clearly, clearly like the, you know, the Christian record label attempt at like, this is our Alanis Morissette now. And, um, it, it was released by a record label called Forefront Records, which, uh, was the label that DC Talk were on. Um, so this would have been a, a Christian major label. And, um, the first single from the album and lead off track is called God. And, um, it definitely has some, uh, Alanis ripoff vibes. Um, there's, I I think I remembered it having like programmed drums, but it's it's live drums. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, acoustic guitar in the verses, loud angsty chorus, angsty sounding chorus, but she's singing about God. And um, there's like a uh breakdowns with like pan flute or something which is there's a little pan flute and there's a little didgeridoo yes it is (laughs) and i do think she may be from australia um but uh so that song does have alana's vibes for me the second song of the album which i think was another single from the album called you're the voice um is just complete Alanis ripoff. Yeah. Like the way uh, the way she's singing, the melody, <laughs> program drums, picked acoustic guitar part. Yeah, like, I listened to a little bit of this album and it was dramatic. The degree to which it was confirming the idea that yes, people did try to chase the Alanis vibe. Definitely. And I mean that that is the thing with Christian music is that you know, it is uh, criticized for being um, completely unoriginal and just completely ripping off um, successful artists, su- successful, <laughs> quote, secular, end quote, artists. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it's... Now, I will go to bat and say that there are quality bands that were in the punk and indie rock scene uh, that are pretty good and some very good. Um, But (laughs) why do you fucking laugh? Jesus. God damn it. Um, But yeah, uh, it's not someone who would say that Christian music sucks and just rips off um, regular music is, is you're not wrong. That absolutely was a thing that happened. And um, who the f*** knows what uh, Christian music is like now, but um, this is a primo example of um, seeing a super popular artist um, and 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 ripping them off completely um, or trying mm-hmm. to and doing a really, really poor job at it. I mean, <laughs> it, it definitely sounds like... <laughs> it, it doesn't sound as good as Alanis Morissette. It doesn't sound like Alanis Morissette, it sounds like someone who is less talented than Alanis Morissette trying to rip off Alanis Morissette. And it's f***ing hilarious. And uh, yeah, I encourage, funny. I encourage the listener to listen to the songs, God and you are the voice. Um, All right. It's hilarious. 
I really appreciate that. Thank you for sharing, brother. Thank you for sharing in our prayer circle. (laughs) (laughs) I did have what might be kind of an interesting epilogue to this. Uh, Yeah. Halsey, Halsey? Jesus Christ, I'm so old. Halsey uh, is a young musical artist who put out an album this year uh, with a song called Alanis' Interlude that features Alanis Morissette. Um, and it is edgy and interesting. Uh, I don't know if it's interesting. I haven't listened to it. I just knew that it existed. (laughs) (laughs) I knew that it existed and I thought it was cool that, um, Alanis's reach extended into an album by a very popular artist in, in 2020. Huh? Okay. I guess my ultimate takeaway here is once again, there were, edgy, angry female artists before Alanis, long before Alanis, but maybe it became more apparent after Alanis Morissette that labels, major labels could make money off Mm -hmm. of these artists. Mm -hmm. And I also believe that um, some artists that came along in the wake of Alanis Morissette were truly original um, and maybe superficially we can attribute some of their success to the success of Jagged Little Pill. But in reality, I guess I'm specifically thinking about Fiona Apple here. In reality, these artists maybe deserve a little bit more credit for truly blazing their own trail yeah, and being, being individuals. In almost all of the examples that we've given, that's, that's the case. Maybe with maybe the exception of Meredith Brooks, which seems to be mm-hmm. like, and I, I I guess I don't know that much about her, but uh, it seems like that hit was just sort of like made designed to be uh, to be the follow up uh, to to jump on your coattails there. Yeah, could be. All right, well, uh, let's move on to the charts. Yeah. Um, on the pop charts, One Sweet Day is finally done after 16 weeks. And we move on to the song Because You Loved Me by Celine Dion, which we'll talk about in greater depth next week because <laughs> we may or may not have recorded that episode before this one <laughs> and not realized that... Uh, it was the second time that anyway, (laughs) um, I do think it's worth mentioning that because you loved me is going to be on the charts for six weeks. And then who's going to come back? Mariah. Mariah in 50. I I looked this up. I I, kind of charted it out in 52 weeks from October, 1995 to October, 1996. Mariah Carey has the number one song in America for 29 wow. of those weeks. That's four different singles. Good for we're her. Living, we're just living in Mariah's America. <laughs> I, I, I believe okay it. I, my affection I for Mariah allegiance. just grows and grows. Yeah. Yes, I pledge allegiance as well. Uh, and at number one on the mainstream rock chart is uh, Santa Monica oh, by Everclear. S- Santa Monica? We what, all like what, quite a I lot. I don't know what song that is. I need... <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. In parentheses, it says, watch oh, the I know world that song. For, f- for I know that Philistines. song. Yes. Good. Thank you. Uh-huh. Anything else on the modern rock chart that's worth mentioning? Of course there is. What do you think is worth <laughs> well, mentioning, Quillen? I was excited when it uh, showed up um, in the previous episode. I think it was... <laughs> I think it was the... Uh, tonight or the uh, 1979 episode that uh flood by jars of clay made its first appearance uh uh-huh. on the uh <sighs> modern rock chart well it's jumped up from the number 31 spot to number 26 which is exciting and i'm i'm interested to see how high it climbs even though i will remind you that it is not even close to my favorite song on that album on my face Hasn't stopped raining for days. My world is a flood. Slowly I become 
one with the mud. Solidarity with Jars of Clay. Um, mm. Otherwise, uh, I see an Afghan wig song um, in the top 40. Uh, Hunky's Ladder, um, <laughs> which is just such a wonderful song title. Um, from the album Black Love, which I am not familiar with, I've only listened to um, Gentleman, um, which is their classic, I think, f- album from 93. Um and also there they had reunited and came out with um a couple of albums um in the 2010s um which were both pretty good um i've not listened to this album i'm interested um this song i think is pretty bad um but uh maybe i'll still check out the rest of the album um and then at number 40 we see sister by the nixons mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. which uh Dancing <laughs> yes. on the stage of yes. memory. Yep. I think this is the second time that I've sung <laughs> yeah. that line on this podcast. I don't this remember when correct. it was before. Um, yeah, I don't think the song's very good, um, but it's worth mentioning. Um, I think I liked it when I was a kid, um, and that is yeah, mm-hmm. bottom of the chart, number forty, and I'm sure it will climb. Um, but uh, yeah, anything, anything else for what? you guys? One song I would mention is the song What Do I Have to Do? Mm. Stabbing Westward was, I guess you could uncharitably refer to them as a Nine Inch Nails knockoff. Mm. Um, I had a phase uh, actually quite a while after this, maybe in the year 2000, where I was was quite into uh, Stabbing Westward and they I, I had a time period. My sophomore year of high school, which maybe for everyone is awful. I feel like that's the Holden Caulfield year. Sophomore year of high school? Sophomore year of high school. Yeah. Uh, I remember sitting at home in my bedroom by myself, listening to Stabber and Westward and playing solitaire. Mm. And um, this song kind of makes me think of that. That was the song I was going to mention. It's interesting. We had done a, um, an episode before this and, and I had seen the song on the chart there and didn't say anything and now i have enough drinks in me where i'm i think i'm stabbing westward drunk so that i could say hey you guys remember stabbing westward um and that song you know uh, yeah it was like one of the rare industrial breakthroughs right you mentioned nine inch nine inch nails that's uh I, i mean probably the only really popular uh comparison you can make Eh, maybe maybe a little bit um they had another single called save yourself later on oh yeah oh yeah yeah i did a little little stabbing westward from the album darkest days (laughs) industrial is a subgenre of music that i was never ever able to get into at all i hated everything Mm -hmm. i've ever heard yeah, I think that's probably fair. I, I think I'm right there with you. I remember my sophomore year being being miserable in a lot mm. of different ways. Um, I had a classmate who, well, he was it wasn't necessarily a classmate. He was a couple years older than me. Uh, I just referred to sophomore year as the what did I just the call Holden it? Caulfield year? Yeah, <laughs> the Holden Caulfield year. Um, this this friend of mine referred to it as the Fight Club year, <laughs> uh, maybe being the year that you realize Tyler that Durden Tyler Durden, Durden yeah. doesn't exist, man, uh, and the the year that you realize that you're not some special, unique snowflake, <laughs> and uh, that the idea that that's hard, and I think I had some romantic frustrations and some. Um, I had some friends who needed a lot from me that I think I wasn't mm. mature enough to provide and uh, listened to that stabbing westward, man. It was really just helped me, helped me just bleed it all out, you know? <laughs> all right. Well, uh, let's yeah. rate ironic. 
Um, I'll go ahead and get us started. As the English teacher, I'm going to give this two and a half red pens. <laughs> ah. Nice. Um, I'll go next. I think uh, I would like to give this 3.75 spoons when all you need is a knife. Oh, man. 3.5, you say, Trav? 3.75. 3.75. Um... <laughs> We know you love it. We know you love do it. it. I, Just give it I a do. high number. I give it 4.5 thousand spoons when all you need is a knife. Wow. 4.5. It's great. <laughs> 4.5 spoons when all you need is 1,979 knives. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Oh. Nirvana wannabe? No. 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 Yeah, no, no. Tell me all your thoughts on Pod as part of the Off Shelf family. Head to offshelf.net to sign up for their monthly zine and check out our sibling podcast, Best Song Ever. The best, most fun way for us to communicate with all of you is via Facebook group. Uh, tell me all your thoughts on Tell Me All Your Thoughts on Pod. However, we still love receiving your emails at thoughtsonpod at gmail.com. You can listen along with our playlist on Spotify or Apple Music, or you can watch along on YouTube. Um, the Oasis song we're talking about next week inspired me to try a new cocktail recipe. It's a champagne cocktail. Let me first say you take like six to eight ounces of champagne. You add some Bacardi and some raspberry liqueur. And it has sort of the golden orange color of an exploding star. I call it a Gallagher Goldie. <laughs> Why don't you try sipping one while you listen to our Champagne Supernova episode? I'll see you next week. Bye. Trevor, are you going to say bye? No. <laughs> uh, okay. Well. I guess I guess we're still done. <laughs> <laughs>